All right, good morning, LLC. Uh, we're on part two of eight of our series called Authentic Marks of a Biblical Community, and we're continuing on with that series today. And I am titling this morning's uh, sermon, uh, The Love from Living Hope from 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 to 25, which Katie just beautifully uh, read for us. Uh, let's just pray again before uh, we dive into the word. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you for meeting us this morning, for giving us the opportunity to be graced uh, by you. Holy Spirit, may you fill us this morning to give us the opportunity and the strength to understand and to receive your word. Jesus, may we meet with you this morning. May you be present among us as well, and may we encounter you uh, through your word. I thank you for this morning that we can gather as a church community, uh, no matter where it is that we're tuning in from. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start off this morning by telling you a story uh, about a Korean woman, a Korean lady named Ann I Suk, and she was born in June 24, on June 24th, 1908. And what's fascinating about her story is that uh, when she was born two years later, the Japanese came and invaded the peninsula and became underneath Japanese rule and reign. And this is important because her mother followed Jesus, uh, but her dad was, her father's side was part of idol worship. Uh, but one night uh, her mom had a conversation with her and told her this, as you can see, idols have no power at all. The Lord Jesus is the only one who can give us true power and happiness and peace. So it was that night that she put her hope and her trust into uh onto Jesus. So after that, uh, she was mandated to go and to uh, get her schooling and training in Japan. And then when she came back, she actually taught at a Christian school and she taught music at a Christian school. But because it was under Japanese reign and, and government and rule, the Japanese authorities came to the Christian school and threatened to close it down and said that if you don't bow down to our Japanese sun goddess, we're going to shut down your school, we're going to capture, we're going to imprison you and we're going to torture you. And so as they're leading the school, the, these authorities leading uh, this uh, uh, Isuk uh, to, to school, uh, uh, to, to the top of the shrine mountain where the shrine is to bow down to this idol, she was praying silently in her mind uh, that she was going to say this, today on the mountain before the large crowd, I will proclaim that there is no other God but you. So they're all pushed forward on top of this mountain. And, and, and where on that day, where at the count of three, everyone was to bow down, but the only one that stood up was Isuk. Uh, and as they descended the mountain from the shrine, there were four officers waiting for her at the school to arrest her. And they did arrest her, but she escaped uh, miraculously from the grass. And she spent the next couple months actually in hiding. But it, she knew it was only a matter of time before the authorities are going to find her and she's going to be in prison. So what did she do with that time? Well, she prepared herself spiritually. Uh, she, uh, she knew she had to prepare herself for torture and for imprisonment. So she fasted and she ate bad food to get her stomach and her body ready in preparation for that. She memorized over 100 chapters of scripture because she knew that, that she wasn't going to have the Bible with her. So she memorized 100 chapters of scripture, memorized hymns, and she prayed, and she trained for this harsh environment. And after months of uh, a few months of hiding, uh, she actually, this, the story gets even better. She felt called not just to come out of hiding, but she was in Korea at that time, was actually to go to the central, uh, the heart of Japan to call the, the government to renounce. Uh, 
uh, to renounce what they're doing. So she goes uh, to Japan and she's standing before the government and, and just tell them to re re renounce their, their religion, uh, to follow uh, to follow God and say that Jesus, to tell them that Jesus is the one and only Lord. And immediately, of course, she was imprisoned and she was in prison for six years uh, in, in, um, in a Japanese prison. And what's even more amazing with that is that when she's in prison, she was sharing her food uh, with prisoners. She was singing hymns, reciting scripture. There's jailers, the people that capture her, the overpower that were ruling over her. Those people came to Christ as well. And there was one day where a lady was uh, put in prison for murdering her husband and she was declared uh, mentally, uh, she was declared insane. Uh, she would bang her head against the wall. She would do all sorts of uh, things to harm herself. And she actually prayed that instead of that, she wanted to minister to this lady. So she actually prayed that that lady will be put in the same cell as her. And she did. And she cared for this lady. She prayed with this lady, even though she was thrashing around and trying to hurt her. But before this lady was led to be executed, because that was the punishment for the crime, this lady actually accepted Jesus, was in her right state of mind. So it was in her six years of imprisonment that she found her calling and her way of, of serving the Lord. And it was in 1945 that the Japanese government surrendered in World War II, and it was then that she moved to Los Angeles, where she lived out the rest of her life, and actually wrote uh, the book, uh, If I Perish, uh, which is after uh, the book of, of Esther, which she changed her name after, that if I perish, I perish after talking to authorities. And I'm sharing the story with you, as amazing, as astounding as that is, because I, 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 as, I, as, I, as I'm reflecting about her story, and her life as a Christian, I'm thinking, how can that be? How do you get to such a place where you don't eat? Uh, not only do you not run away from pain, but you run straight into it, knowing what you're going to suffer, not, not only run away from it, but prepare for it in the way that she did. How was she able to love people in the way that she did? And have you ever wondered how people really live like that? Because this, she isn't the only one uh, in the world that has a, a testimony, an example like this. And as we continue on, on this series, we're going to learn today that the marks of an authentic biblical community has a love that gets its life from living hope. And that's what we saw from Esther there in that short story, that our love that we have for one another, this love gets its life from a living hope, not a dead hope, not a forgotten hope, but a living hope that still is living today. Now, First Peter was written uh, to a scattered people in 62 to 63 AD, and they were known as the diaspora. Uh, they were dispersed throughout uh, the provinces. We read this. If you get an opportunity, First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this letter was written, written to the God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So they were scattered. Why? Because they're under persecution. They're running away from the government. They're going and there's all these underground churches that are happening and they're still proclaiming Christ, but they're scattered around because they had to be because of the oppression that they're facing. So there are these Christians that have been scattered because of their persecution and they're living every day with their lives on the line, not knowing if, that, if they're going to make it tomorrow, if the police are going to rush in through the door. And Peter is writing to encourage these persecuted Christians. And in today's text, Peter essentially says, even though you're scattered, even though you're persecuted, even though people are after your lives, I want to remind you to remember to love. Now, let me ask you this question. If you're worried about your life, if you're worried about whether you have enough food for tomorrow or you're going to even live it through, uh, live until this evening, 
uh, would this, wouldn't this to love other people be on the last thing uh, on your mind? If you're living as if today was your last, would you be concerned about loving other people? Now, last week we read, uh, we heard from Jesus in John 13, 34 through 35, a new command to give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. And without a doubt, we read later on in that text that Peter was there. Peter would have heard the words of Jesus coming out of Jesus' mouth directly that, and understood this, that we can't call ourselves Christians and not love people, that there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't love. And he wants to remind the people that have been scattered of this, that love is the birthmark of a Christian. That to love, that is the birthmark of a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're trapped in a prison or walking freely in Vancouver. Love is the birthmark of a Christian. And Christians are defined by love because we've been saved by love. This love that we receive from God. Christian love gets its life from a living hope. And that living hope is Jesus. It's a living God, a living person that we still have a relationship and walk with uh, today. And Peter understands this. He reminds the Seattle Christians uh, to this, even though they're undergoing suffering, even though they're going through pain, he's reminding them uh, of this. So we see this in verses one to two, one to 12, Peter reminds them of their salvation. Peter reminds them that they, there's this living hope that they have because of how they've been saved from God. And this salvation that they have, the salvation that you have, is salvation that the, the prophets uh, in the Old Testament, they, they predicted. And this salvation that you have is what the first century Christians and the apostles and the disciples, it's what they proclaimed. If you read all the way to verse 12, this same salvation is what the angels in heaven are pondering about. That this salvation that you have in God, this living hope that you have inside of you, this Holy Spirit that you have, that counsels us, that gives us strength and power, the angels ponder about that. How, how would God save humanity in this way? And then in verses 13 to 21, because of the salvation, he reminds them, the dispersed, the dis diaspora, uh, the people undergoing suffering, reminds them that there's still response. There is a response that comes from receiving this salvation. More specifically, because of their salvation, there's a call to holiness. First uh, Peter 14 and 15, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you, you had when you lived in ignorance. So when you lived in a way that you didn't know God. But just as he called you as holy, so be holy in all you do. Verse 16, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So God is holy, which means uh, other uh, or different or separate, set apart. So we as God's children are meant to inherit his nature because that's what children do. Children inherit the qualities and the nature of their parents. So as children of God, that's how we are to live. We inherit the holiness of God. But if you've been Christian for any amount of time, if you've known God any amount of time or been in the church, you know, it's not that easy. We feel the tension every day between who we are and how we live and how we think and how we feel the constant complicated wrestling of all those different aspects of life. And American, Christ, uh, American Christian missionary Jim Elliott once said, this, forgive me for being so ordinary while claiming to know so extraordinary a God. And that's fascinating coming from him because he was later martyred and uh, later martyred for, for reaching out to a remote people in Ecuador. And it was actually 65 years ago, last Friday in 1956, that he was martyred. And the movie End of the Spear 
uh, which maybe some of you have seen. It's, it's named after, uh, it's made after him. But my question is, what, what led people like Esther Kim or Jim Elliott to travel and, and to places of hurt and pain? What led Jim Elliott to travel to Ecuador to a lost people? And I think it has to do with this, that he had a love that was fueled by this living hope. And he had this unshakable sense that he had to do something about this faith that he had, that he had to live it out and express it in a way that, that only he knew how. And I'm not saying that all of us need to be missionaries in the, uh, the, the Congo or in Ecuador or in the deepest, darkest places of the world. But I want to remind us that the deepest, darkest places might not be in the jungles of the Congo, but it might be on your campus. It might be in your workplace. It might be in your family. It might be in the relationships that you have, that we are called to bring this living hope into those places. So, okay. I haven't even got to the text yet today. Uh, so Peter is talking about a response to the salvation and our response is to be holy as God is holy. Then suddenly in verse 22, which is the main bulk of our text today, I'm going to focus on, he switches over to love. So what's the connection between holiness and, and love? I'm not sure if you really naturally for me in my mind, it naturally connects over to one another. But again, we get it, get this from the text today that love gets its life from this living hope. And this living hope that we get comes from a holy God. Being holy as God is holy results in loving as God loves. Love is the expression of holiness. That if we're holy, being holy as, as God is holy, love is the natural progression and expression of this uh, understanding of, of holiness. And I feel like this topic uh, this morning is important uh, because if we understand this today, it's not only in the way that we do missions and the way we outreach to our city and the people around us, this will have a huge impact in the way that we love one another. Here, right in the church, here, right where you are, this will lead us to understanding of our authentic self, of who God has made us to be, to be in relationship with him. This will impact our relationship with one another, to be better friends. This will impact your marriages. Uh, this will build strong marriages because it's not just about doing something about your marriage. It's about understanding and growing a strong relationship with God. And, and the result of that, that leads to strong marriages and a strong understanding of how we love one another. And this will teach us how to love everyone, really, our coworkers, uh, the least lovable people that you can think about, uh, the classmates, the same love that, that led Esther Kim to love that woman in the same jail cell as her. And I'm going to break down uh, verses 22 to 25 into two, two parts. That I'm going to break it down into answering these two main questions. What makes our living hope living? And question number two, what does love characterized by this living hope exactly look like? Okay, so what makes our living hope living? And looking at our text in 1 Peter, you've no, you might have noticed that the command to love is sandwiched between the promise of receiving this living hope. Now, what do I mean? Uh, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, and it goes on to say, so that you have sincere love for one another. I'm going to put that on the side curve. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, and that jumped to verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So we see here in the beginning, it says that you've been purified by obeying the truth. And then it's sandwiched by another statement in verse 23, that for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So we read how we receive this living hope by really obeying the truth and by being born again. Those are the two ways that we receive this living hope. 
my question is by what truth? A truth as we learn in scripture often refers to scripture itself. That is what truth is. It's God's word. And as you obey God's word, which is fascinating for the word for obey, because the root word for obey is actually to listen. So as we listen to the truth, as we have faith in the truth, as we believe in the truth, the living and enduring word of God, it comes into us and it purifies us. It changes us. It transforms us into who God calls us to be. And more on this transformation, purification a little bit later. But the point is that we become changed when we read the word, when we hear the word of God. So our living hope is living because it's based on the living word. It's based on a living word. And the word is living because it's not something, but it's based on someone. It's living because it points to a living God. That everything you read here in scripture, everything that you have in your Bibles, it's pointing to a real person, into a real relationship that we have. It's not just a set of commands. We're actually learning about a person. And this word, this God that we follow, uh, this word that we have, it's, it's, it's imperishable. It's not perishable. It's, it does not fade. It's infinite. It holds true. It holds firm no matter what. So that's why Peter goes on in verse 24 to says, for all the people are like grass, quoting Isaiah 40, for all the people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field and the grass withers and, and the flowers fall. But, but the hope that we have is living because the word of God endures forever. And this is the word that, ha that was preached to you. If you want to have this living hope, if you want to have a life that is founded on an unshakable foundation, then you want to read the word of God. You want to hold on to the word of God. Like Esther came memorizing those, those, those Bible passages. You want to hold it on for dear life as if our life depended on it because our lives do depend on it. And if we base it on anything else, it's like this. And this quote, uh, quotation of Isaiah 40, that it will fade away. It might, be, it might work out for a little while, but eventually in those 70, 80, 90 years that we have, eventually it will fade away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word, it has been preached to you. You have uh, received it. You have heard it. It's, but it's up to us whether we believe it and have truly accepted it or not. So when the word is preached to you, something supernatural happens. Something supernatural is happening within you. Whether you're listening to the word or you're reading the word, it's not something that can be exactly explained because it's the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you that even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't think it is happening or doing anything, God is working inside of you. We get that promise here in, in the words of scripture. And as he's working, he's swapping out what is perishable inside of you and he's replacing it or something that's imperishable. God is doing surgery inside of you, removing whatever was dead inside of you and replacing it with something that is alive. He's doing that bit by bit, piece by piece. And this love that we have gets its life from living hope that when we receive this living hope inside of us, we come alive as well. That we also become imperishable. Though our bodies might fade, our souls go on forever and we have this relationship with God. And as an outpouring of that, this love is fueled by this living love. It, it always protects. This love that we have, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, borrowing from the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. And this kind of love never fails because it comes from a God that never fails. It comes from a hope that never fails. Love gets its life from living hope. What's interesting about the word purify, as I alluded to before, how 
the Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter, starts off by using how by telling us that you've been purified by obeying the truth, and as you obey the truth, you become born again. You have this new life in God. You have this new hope in God. Uh, you become purified as you obey the truth and as, and as you become born again. And what's interesting about this word for purify is that, biblically speaking, there's really only two reasons why you purify yourselves. Firstly, it's because we've done wrong, we've sinned, and we've fallen apart from God. So people go to the temple and purify themselves in this way. But second of all, priests also purify themselves before they perform any uh, a ceremony or they do any kind of ministry inside of the temple, they purify themselves, they wash their hands and get them ready to serve God. And I really believe Peter is referring more to the second one here, he's alluding to that. Uh, there's a few reasons. Later on, he talks about the holy temple, how you're also holy priesthood in chapter two. Uh, but here, more specifically, is the next set of commands for you to love, which is really to serve the people around you. And this is really important for us to understand because in the New Testament, we're, we're to understand that we're no longer to see the temple as a building. When we're talking about the temple, we're really talking about God's people. We're talking about serving and loving his people. We're talking about being with his people. We read this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19a. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? That your bodies are the temple. You are the temple now. Like we are the moving temple of, of God. Not set to a building, but set to a people. And what's fascinating here is that the you, even though it doesn't say that in English, the you here Paul is talking about isn't the singular you. The you that he's talking about here in the beginning of verse 19 is a plural you. So you collectively, as a people today, you are the body. Uh, your bodies are the temple. You make up now the body of Christ. And there's more to be said here, but this is very important for us because this is significant because some of you feel like you don't belong. You feel like you don't belong to an authentic community. You feel like you're not part of this community here at LLC or whichever church uh, that you, you, you call home. You feel like you don't belong, but simply because of this statement, simply because you have this living hope, simply because you have received Jesus into your life, that being Christian means you're part of God's family already, that you're naturally into community. That's what it means that when you become Christian, you naturally are brought into the family of God. And God's presence is always in his temple. He never leaves his temple. He's always with you. He's always with his people. And number three, even though the building is fixed, the body is mobile. The people of God are mobile. We're no longer fixed to 645 East 47th Avenue that the people of God are wherever it is that we're scattered throughout the city and in the world. And Tertullian uh, notices this. He notes this. Tertullian, he was born in 160 AD, and he was an early Christian author, historian, and philosopher in North Africa. And his famous quote all the way back then in 160 AD uh, was this, as he was watching the persecution of the church, uh, his famous quote was, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that as the, the blood of the martyrs are spilt, that's where love is it's grown. That's where the church is, uh, it grows and blossoms because people understand what the gospel is really all about. But what he also said uh, in his treaty, and th this is a super long name, apology or defense of the Christians against the accusations of the Gentiles, very specific folk that he's writing about. He says this as he's uh, pretending or writing from the, not pretending, writing from 
the aspect of the non-Christians at that time from the Gentiles. Uh, he argued this, that the life taught in scripture is morally superior to the pagans. And there's one line in, his, in this treaty that he says this, as, 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 uh, as he imagined the pagans looking at the Christians, and they said this, look, how they love one another, for they themselves, the pagans, hate one another, and how they are ready to die for each other, for they themselves are readier to kill each other. And I love this in 160 AD. I love, as we learn from church history, I love how the church is known for its love. But the reason why they had the supernatural love is because they had, they had this understanding of the supernatural God. The reason why they had this love is because their love gets its fuel, gets its energy, gets its power and strength from a living hope. And they lived it out. And they, and they transformed the communities at that time. So can we say the same about our churches today? And more personally, can people say that about our church? Can they say this statement here about our church, Lord's Love Church today in 2021? Because here in 1 Peter, we see we've been given a new ability through our new birth to love one another. And because, there's, uh, when, because when we follow God, because of this new birth, there's always fruit. There's always fruit. Did you know that? The, the evidence of a transformed life isn't the gifts that we have, but it's actually the fruit that we show. That's the evidence of a transformed life. It isn't the things that we can do physically. It's actually the fruit that we bear in our lives. Galatians 5, 22, 23, the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the greatest evidence of having the spirit in us, of believing God and being born again is fruit, not what we can do, not what we can do on the surface, but a real genuine fruit that comes out of us. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So whenever there is this true, genuine love and relationship with God, whenever we grasp onto the living hope that we have, there is a fruit that comes. And that's because when we believe we're born again, and, and when we're able to love in this way, in the supernatural way that we're talking about this morning, in the way that Tertullian described in 160 AD, we know that we have been born again. It doesn't have to be in the most remote places and jungles of the world. It could start off with your household, with the person right next to you, with your coworker, with your schoolmate, with whoever it is, the person on the bus. That's how we know we have this new life with God. So the living hope that we have is living because it comes from a living God. This imperishable seed that's been planted inside of us. This hope that can't be removed, that can't be stolen by the ways of the world. But what does this exactly look like physically? What does love characterized by this living hope look like? Let's backtrack a little bit to 22b. So we have this hope in God. We have this living hope. We have been purified. So, so that what? So that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. That when you have this living hope, this love is fueled by this living hope so that you have the sincere love for each other. The context of it, it is within the church here that for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And if we break that down, we see that uh, we're to love each other sincerely. Or another way of translating it is that we're to love one another without hypocrisy. That's what that means. 
sincere means authentic means without hypocrisy so we don't put on a friendly face and then talk behind people's back we don't show love only to expect something in return we don't just talk about superficial things but we go deeper than that because what does this sincere love look like and i have a few ideas for us maybe the sincere love as we don't hide behind a mask which is what hypocrisy means the sincere love actually maybe one of the first steps for us is to show up that we show sincere love for one another to show up, to remove them as to show up the real, our real selves to show up. Because when we show up, that's a part of loving one another. And this is something that we've been wrestling with. And I believe all our churches and our church included wrestle with this is that we don't go to church or we don't become part of a church thinking, what can I get out of this? Or what can, or maybe better yet, some of you are thinking, well, I go to church so that my wife can get something out of it, or my husband can get something out of it, or my kids can get something out of it. No, we, 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 we don't go to church for that. We, we show up uh, really to listen to God, to connect with him, but also we show up for each other. And I just need to uh, slip that, uh, slip this in, in there is that uh, w- with how terrible of a week this was with what happened in down South in the States, and when I read the, the, the tweet that Trump isn't going to show up to the inauguration, I'm just thinking just showing up matters. Uh, just showing up matters without you saying anything. It's showing up matters to the people around you. And maybe for you as a part of sincere love, just showing up to your life group, showing up to church, showing up to the fellowship event, even though you might not be all in for it, it just matters because the people around you matters sincere love also isn't just about showing up though it goes deeper than that maybe it's actually for you spending time and talking with each other it's helping each other out it means being with each other uh, without hypocrisy without any other agenda just being with one another so we hear we learn here that we're to love one another without hypocrisy but another thing we learn is that we're to love each other deeply from the heart or it can be translated as we're to love one another perseveringly that as we love each other deeply, which means fervently, eagerly, perseverantly, looking at, looking for the next moment to love one another, this means that we never give up. We, we don't give up, even though it's difficult, even though maybe the person you're trying to love is difficult to love, you keep pressing on no matter what, because that's what we're called to. And we're also called to love sacrificially. And why do I say that? It's because here, uh, you notice in the two verses, in that one verse, that there's love is mentioned two times. The first love, a sincere love, that's actually phileo love. And I mentioned that last week. Phileo love is a friendship, brotherly kind of affection. But here, when we're to love each other deeply, the word changes to agape. It's agape love. It's a sacrificial love. A persevering kind of love that even though it's difficult, even though you want to give up, even though you don't think the person is worth loving, you sacrifice and you still love and you push forward in that way. God is saying to us today, don't settle on a phileo love, even though that is good. Even though you get to know one another and you get to talk about certain things, don't settle on the phileo love, go deeper, but deep into an agape kind of love. Maybe for you, it's pushing through, even though others aren't committed to whatever it is that you have agreed to commit through. You're going to say, I'm going to push through. I'm still going to be there for one another because that's me living out this love for you. Maybe it's sacrificing our comfort levels and it's sacrificing the walls that we built up and, and breaking down those walls from the inside out that you, you're going to say, I'm going to let myself out a little bit to be vulnerable and to share a little bit more deeply and to build up an authentic community. It's going to start with me. 
maybe it's pressing into the awkwardness and gently and graciously and lovingly holding people accountable to something that you see someone straying from their from from their walk with Jesus and you're going to call them out in a gentle and gracious and loving way uh, instead of leaving it be because you're going to sacrifice your own comfort you're going to sacrifice your own awkwardness and whatever you think is most comfortable and maybe for some of you it's actually giving up whatever you need for the sake of the other person that's you living out this persevering agape deep love that whatever you are looking for, you're going to curb that. You're going to give that all up. You can give up all your comforts of what you think you're looking for in community and pour out yourself for the person around you. So we're not to remain with sincere love, but this ought to lead us to a deep sacrificial love for one another. Sincere love is nice, but agape love is from God. And we're to live that out. We're to sacrifice for one another. And this means, again, we're doing what's best for the other person. That's what's best for us. We're to love in this way all the time, but especially when it's hard. So when it's hard for you to love, that's especially your call in that moment to press through that time, that moment, to show the most godly love that you can to the people around you. And maybe for some of you today, it, again, it's sacrificing and persevering through this moment, even when community isn't what you think it's supposed to be, even when community you're experiencing doesn't seem to be great. We need to give that up for what we think is best, for what's best for the other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lutheran pastor, theologian, and later executed uh, in the Nazi concentration camp. And as New York Times wrote about him, choosing between choosing God and the fewer, he chose God. Uh, he writes this in his book, Life Together, which, by the way, was written in an underground church, an underground seminary in 1939. He says this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. I'm going to read that again. The person who loves their dream of community, whatever they think it is, whatever the dream idea of community is, will destroy community, but the person who loves their love those around them will create community. So it's actually not about what we think is needed as much as it is about what others need and how you can fulfill that and love the people around you. Because ultimately, isn't that what Jesus did? When Jesus walked on earth, he loved the people around him. Wherever Jesus went, Jesus created community. In fact, Jesus loved us so much that and wanted to create a community with us so much that he left his community in heaven. Whatever, that was the perfect community that he had. Jesus loved us so much that he broke apart the community that they knew, the perfect community within the Trinity that he had in heaven to come down to earth for me and for you. The community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that Jesus was sent and that community was broken. And it was for the sake of creating community that Jesus was sent to the cross. For the sake of creating community that Jesus was sent to the cross so that we can experience a relationship with him. That is our example of love. That is our example of, of sacrifice. That is an example of authenticity, of our understanding of this living hope of this, from this living God. The Trinity already had the dream of perfect community in heaven, but God didn't want to include you in that. God didn't want, want, God didn't want to include you 
and leave you out of that dream too. He wanted you in that dream as well. I want to share a little bit more personally right now that what drew me to LLC at first was the community. And it still is. It's still the people. I didn't understand God. I didn't know God. But through the people and the way that they lived out their faith, I got a glimpse of who God is. I got a glimpse and understanding of how to love that the people around me sacrificed as Jesus sacrificed. People around me loved as Jesus loved. People around me showed up, even though when I didn't show up, because in their lives, they're like, God shows up and God is present. God is the with me, God, with us, God. And because of that, I'm going to be with his people uh, as well. And I saw that it didn't matter their job and their background and their age. They showed up and were there for people around. I saw this in the way that they worshiped. I saw this in the way that they hung out and they had lunch and dinner. I know it's a little bit harder now because of COVID. I saw in the way that they joked and the way they spent time with each other, that even though two hours of life group was what came to an end, they're like, hey, what are you guys doing afterwards? Want to hang out a little bit more? And hey, what are you going to do after that? Want to hang out a little bit more? I saw that in that community. I saw that there was no time restrictions in who and how they spent with each other. I saw how they let their walls down in the way that they confessed their sins with each other and the way that they shared in their brokenness, that this is what I'm wrestling with now. This is what breaks my heart now. This is what I, I'm going through right now. And I saw it in the way that they saw church, that it wasn't like, oh, another church event. Oh, do I really have to go to that? Oh man, like that retreat, do I have to sign up for that? No, I, I saw people willingly pressing through and saying, this is what I want to be a part of. And it came from this living hope that they had have in God. And every single time I, a retreat ended, for me, or our life group ended, I was sad because I was waiting for the next time that we could do that again. Church, if we want to impact the community, we want to impact the people around us right now, we, our hope and our love and our idea of community and love has to come from this living hope that we have, not what we think, from this real experience that we have with Jesus. And that is called for us this morning that our love for each other can't be grounded in anything else other than the hope that we have in God. We can't love each other because that's what we think we should do or what that's what the Bible says, or we think that if we do this, we can coerce people into coming to church. We can't love other people just because we think we're nice. We, our love for each other has to come from this living hope. And that's what's sustainable. That's what fuels us. That's what empowers us. That's what ultimately changes people. And that's what ultimately changes and transforms a church community. It makes us into the authentic church that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we confess. We confess of all the ways that we've messed things up, of what church has been. I confess, God, of what I've made church to be. So Father, this morning, may you place in us this living hope. May you place in us not our dream of what a community looks like, but your dream of what a community looks like, your vision for what a church ought to look like. God, may you place in us this living hope so that we can have this holy love for one another. The sacrificial love that people talk about saying, my, how they love each other. I might not understand this God. I might not understand this Jesus. I might not understand the Holy Spirit. But wow, do they love God. Father, we want that this morning. May you give us the supernatural love for each other so that the world may know that you are God.
that you alone are the one that can fulfill us and that could change us and that could give us, Lord, meaning in life. Father, may Lord's Love Church be that this morning. And may it start with me. May it start with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.